the go, sprint lectures on African mobilities, a podcast by Africa Multiple. Okay, welcome everyone to the third sprint lectures on African mobilities this term. Um, my name is Uli Beisel. I'm a professor of culture and technology in Africa at the University of Bayreuth, and I'm very pleased to welcome you all, and especially our speakers today, Dr. Paddy Kenyera and Professor Martin Bövenschweck. I will very briefly introduce both of them to you, and then we're directly, swiftly moving on to our 20-minute lecture talk and then 20-minute debate. All right, Paddy Kenyera is a postdoc at the Cluster of Excellence Africa Multiple at the University of Bayreuth, and he's working in the oil movements project um, on the production and government of petro immobilities in East Africa, and he's joining us from Uganda today. Welcome, Paddy. And um, Martin Dönschbeck is a professor of political geography at the University of Bayreuth, and works in the same research project as Paddy, and we're really pleased to have you both here today. The floor is yours. Okay, thank you, Uli. I will give a short introduction and then hand over to Paddy. Um, first of all, I must apologize that um, in advance for having to leave a little earlier today because I have to go to uh, um, Dr. Caesar's defense at two, and, uh, but Paddy will be with you, and since it was him who did the empirical work, you will definitely not miss me. Um, what we are presenting today is, a, let's say, a summary of a text that we wrote for uh, the, the edited volume of the cluster on COVID-19 in Africa, or, or COVID-19 and Africa, I don't know, actually. Um, when Petty was under the Ugandan lockdown uh, from March 2020 on, uh, we discussed, among other things, how to proceed with our cluster project on oil movement. Um, when fieldwork is no longer possible in the way we thought it would be. Uh, we also quickly realized again, um, as, we, uh, as we all did, of course, uh, wherever we are or were, that certain movements are restricted or forbidden, while others are still allowed. Um, that certain people in groups are, are allowed to move or have the, the right and the privilege to move, or the privilege not to move, and others not. Mobility, um, of course, is a resource that, due to different um, and uneven options, can be accessed to, to varying degrees. Mobility, as a, as a context-specific constellation of movement, um, physical movement, representations of this movement, and, and concrete mobile practices, is political. So uh, we can ask who moves first, um, who moves furthest, fast, faster, the most faster, most often, and who does not move, and for what reasons? When does immobility become um, a privilege? What constitutes mobility and immobility for various groups, and why? Uh, are immobility or mobility forced or voluntary? The significance of these issues was and still is globally redefined by the government imposed uh, lockdowns with uh, quarantine, stay-home orders, bans on entering public spaces, travel restrictions, and, and border closures. The identification and separation of sick and, and um, or potential sick and healthy bodies controls through spatial closures and, and the, the procage of potentially dangerous flows and movements 
are of course uh, centuries old um, methods of infection containment now caused um, biosecurity. And with COVID-19, restricting and controlling mobility to contain the spread of the virus re-emerged as a global model um, to respond to the pandemic. So, um, but different modes of immobilization um, affect the lives of individuals in highly specific ways, depending not only on their social and legal statuses, but also on, on their gender, on, on age, on race. These various factors determine how uh, immobilization measures are embodied differently within the given population, and consequently how effective government interventions are. Mobility is therefore more than physical movement and immobilization more than the reduction of physical movement across space. Mobility includes the social and, and effective potential of movement and its active restriction renders visible existing inequalities within and across societies. And in this book chapter, we hope to bring together two dimensions of this pandemic, the politics of immobility and mobility and the political instrumentalization of the pandemic. We know uh, in general relatively little about how uh, people in Africa experienced the restrictions of, or privileges of the new mobility or immobility regimes. And we know little um, about how the politics of the pandemic play out in very concrete places yeah, and how people actively deal with them. For example, how they creatively navigate them or even subvert them. And um, we follow, uh, we followed a subaltern approach, um, pity did it <laughs> actually, a more sustained engagement with those sites and, and actors and voices uh, that are usually marginalized um, by critical geopolitics. So uh, mobility regimes, usually this concept of mobility regime summarizes the, the governance of international, international migration that is characterized by the sharp contrast of free movement in, in and from the global north and on the other, uh, and on the one hand, and that enters imaginations um, relating to global south where movement is controlled, sanctioned, and generally undesired, especially if these movements target the north. The concept of mobility um, regimes explores, uh, and I'll quote um, Click and um, Click Schiller and Salazar, the relationships between the privileged movements of some and the codependent but stigmatized and forbidden movements, migration and interconnection of the poor, powerless, and exploited. So we deploy mobility or immobility regimes uh, on, a, on a national level to understand them as constituted by a specific set of, of actors, of networks, of communication, of institutions, technologies, powers, knowledge, through which movement is contained within national borders, or more generally, through which immobilities are governed in the pandemic and the ways the targeted uh, population, the targeted subject um, responds. So thinking of the relations of mobility and stasis as both an outcome of and um, the shaping of a regime means um, to reveal the, the entangled power relations at work and in, in these um, uh, very concrete, specific, uh, also place specific um, state society relations. And what Petty um, will present now uh, underlines that um, ethnographic research, if possible, 
highlights the importance of, um, of studying the, the, the subjective accounts of embodied differences to better understand the outcomes uh, or the outcomes of, of immobilization. So um, that's what we are doing in this text. We critically engage with, with how knowledge comes into being and how it informs immobilization measures in order to understand um, also the, the, um, the responses. Okay, please, Patty. Thank you very much, um, Martin, and uh, thanks all for attending this uh, print lecture. Um, like Martin already pointed out, this is a book chapter that is hopefully going to be published in the cluster volume on COVID-19 and Africa. And we decided to prompt ourselves to try and engage with the, the deprivations that we had in terms of doing research. So we didn't want to to, to feel sorry for ourselves and sit home and say research is impossible. So we had to actually conduct research on that which makes research impossible. And um, we had to think of a paper on COVID-19 and mobility, mobility regimes in Uganda, whereupon we based our analysis on uh, micro fields of movement that were constrained by institutional forces of government that was coming down to the population to try and contain the spread of COVID-19. This research was conducted in my own home region. That's where you have certain names, like maybe you, you may not have read the paper yet, but when you read, you, re you realize there are certain names of places that I've been mentioning in that paper. These are real, 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 real-time places that are there. And um, some of the things that appeared there are actually um, real conversations with people who are engaging with these restrictions and trying to navigate their way through through different mobility restrictions. Now, I, I begin with the timeline for COVID-19 in Uganda. I was in Kenya when COVID became a serious issue in, in the region, Rwanda, uh, Tanzania, and Kenya. And um, it started um, emerging in Uganda that there could be closure of borders. So I had to rush through Turkana and go via Karamoja and get out, out of my home district from, from the Pokot region. I didn't even have to go all the way to, 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 to Butsi and Malaba. I just had to cross through Moroto and cross over to my home. And immediately I reached home, they, they started announcing the very first instances of lockdown. Um, and uh, other, like for example, border closures came into force and that was around mid-March. Um, effectively, uh, on the 18th of, of March is when there was a clear uh, picture of where we were heading. And um, the first case of COVID-19 came on the 21st. A traveler, a businessman coming back home from Dubai registered the first case. And that was three days after the first pronouncement by the president on what should take place in Uganda in order to contain the spread of the virus. Eventually, Entebbe Airport was closed. And uh, it came in into series of what, what we call what we call the presidential pronouncements that came in every other week, every Tuesday. I remember one of the, the Nasari kids around me asked, why, why is it that it's Pambe Museveni announcing reading news these days? Because he was the one who was always on TV telling people what to do and what not to do. And that actually became one of the basis of our analysis of the power structure of how mobility is supposed to be governed. Then later on, we came to a point where 
um, there were supposed to be um, political processes going on in Uganda, nominations for, for candidates that are starting, standing in for political, political positions, like in the members of parliament and the president and district leaders. All these came within the debate of how do we go about this? And then it came to closure of schools and everybody came to lockdown for two weeks. Then the two weeks came, another two weeks, then another 21 days, then another, until I think it went up to about 120 something days, up to around, around, uh, around August. That's when the lockdown began to be eased. Now, um, within Uganda, uh, the, 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 we, as part of the pandemic anxiety, as part of the pandemic uh, response team, it's normally uh, legal that the ministry responsible for health takes precedence and pronounces the measures that that uh, that a country should take, that that a country should go through, in order to contain an outbreak of um, and continued outbreak of the spread of a, of, a, of, a, of a dangerous virus like COVID-19. We had these cases with Ebola, for example, and that also was pronounced by the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health is governed by an Act of Parliament, that is the Public Health Act of 1935, that was even way before, before independence. But in the, in the real sense of COVID-19, that now draws our attention is that COVID-19 came to a point where um, it was not the doctors, it was not the health workers, it was not the, the Ministry of Health, particularly the experts in the Ministry of Health, but it was the political leadership that was trying to give the scientific reasoning behind COVID-19. So this is an idea somewhere that, we, that made us begin to think about who then has really the power to determine sick bodies and isolate them. Now, we did not want to take this out of context. We wanted to keep it within the context of the political situation at play. That is why, if you, if you, if you in the document, we have something we call a power structure of managing COVID-19, which is topped by the president, and then the president formed something called the National COVID-19 Task Force, which is also managed by the office of the prime minister, and the office of the prime minister is directly appointed by the president. And then there are subnational wings. And the subnational wings, below the subnational wings, then we have uh, security officials. The, the head of security is the inspector general of police, and then the district police commanders, and then district commissioners who, are, who, who chair the security bodies. Now, the district health officials, who are actually the technical people to identify who is sick and who is not sick, have to get orders from the political appoint, political appointed officials who are the, the RDCs and the rest. And then the implementation of these orders are undertaken by armed forces. That's uh, in the diag that diagram where, you, which is part of this chapter, you find there are something we call foot soldiers. These foot soldiers are actually LDUs, local defense units, who are trained. And what do they do? Their work is to hold guns around and uh, stop people, beat them up, or if, if they're trying to abrogate what they call presidential pronouncement. Um, and all that came in the name of trying to keep people safe. Now, there are so many ironies here that of course 20 minutes we cannot, we cannot make presentations on. Now, in identifying all this, we realized 
these this of containment of mobility produced what we call three moments. And the three moments, of course, we could not isolate it with the situation that was at play, the political situation, the need to come as the population to vote for, for the president. By the way, uh, uh, the president won uh, the election on the 14th of this month. But I think I was offline for five days. I couldn't access the internet. And because such information about how he's winning and how his things are going on was not supposed to be shared by the international public like yourselves. So I missed some conversation that I was supposed to be doing. So the three moments we looked at are moments of partisan politics. And this we target directly to election. That is the first moment. Then the second moment is the contradict what we call contradictory state visibility. Um, then the other moment is structural mistrust and corruption. Under the moment of um, partisan politics, we identified a clear pattern of containment of the, of the COVID-19. The pattern was, if someone was supposed to be able to move, then they should be linked to with the establishment. They should be linked with the political party that is in power. That is, you're either supposed to carry the, the national resistance movement flag along with your vehicle as you go along, so they know that is one of us, so you are able to move as far as you can. Or you're supposed to go and carry a letter from the RDC that allows you to move. Now, the contradiction here is the RDC does not check you whether you're sick or not sick. So whether you have a virus or you don't have a virus, as long as you belong to the party, they don't check you. All they give you is a piece of paper that allows you to go wherever you want. You can as well go and spread the virus wherever you want to, to spread it, as long as you're part of the establishment. So that is, um, so it was, it was like identifying who has the power at this material time to move. Now, the incentive to move in that way is that you will not only be publicizing the party, you will also be trying to show that um, you are, you are, you are, there is still a bit of love for national resistance movement. Um, then the second moment that we, we consider is contradictory state visibility. Now, the, why, why do we call it contradictory? It's contradictory in the sense that first, the state comes in with the, with the, with the narrative that we need to protect the population. What? Now, protecting the population means keeping them at bay of the virus, but also keeping their lives continuing, keeping them alive. That was the narrative. But within the fight for COVID-19, the state actually killed, killed in quotes, indirectly killed people by not allowing people to access certain amenities. I know of a young man in my village who we buried, I think a few days after this lockdown started. He was supposed to be taken to the hospital. He had um, something within his stomach that needed urgent medical attention. So we drove him, we reached um, uh, a roadblock and the other diseases were there and uh, they stopped him. They said, where are you going? Because uh, the, the people carrying him were using a motorcycle. So they said, no, no, you are not allowed to carry people. You are not allowed to move around. It's lockdown and it's everything. So what you do, put, put your things there and wait to go to prison. 
Meanwhile, the, 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 the health of this young man was deteriorating every single minute. Then after about 35 minutes, the, the police officer saw the young man losing energy every other time, and then decided, now you can proceed. But before the doctors could even start making their examination, the young man was pronounced dead, and we had to bring him back. So in, in, the, in the event of trying to contain someone from getting a virus, someone was actually lost a life. So this, this was very contradictory for us. And then the other thing is, the state has got so many departments. There's the Department of Health, there's the Department of, of Security and the rest. But within the fight for COVID-19 and the containment of mobility in Uganda, the state, the Department of Health was passive. There was much of the military than, the military was actually more visible. So the state was on the scene when you see a gun, when you see soldiers, when you see, not when you see a technical expert, a doctor or a medical superintendent of a hospital coming to explain to you what, what is happening. So this is a, these are moments where you really think, okay, the state to us in Uganda means the soldiers. It doesn't mean the economists, it doesn't mean the doctors, it doesn't mean... So this is for us a moment that we so uh, that was part of the containment of the, of, of the coronavirus in Uganda. Then there's the element of structural mistrust. It reached a point where, it comes to that point where people actually decided to say, no, enough is enough. You cannot contain us. For, for 90 days, you give us six kilograms of posho and four kilograms of beans, and we have to eat that for 60 days. No, it can't happen. People started actually violating some of these rules by passing them using some very, very clear techniques. And these are the techniques that we call alternate approaches to managing or navigating through the, the, the COVID-19 restrictions. That was, they started bribing the security officials, and the security officials actually at the state were no longer concerned about COVID-19, but were concerned about how much they can gain from people who want to move, and how much they can gain when they try to lock down people and, and, um, and, and, and make their mobility difficult. And then when they try to navigate the mobility, they get into a point of transaction where they exchange money and, and, and benefits like that. So um, the, 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 the structural mistrust came in a point where there was quarantine and enrichment. I remember Yoken and, and, and Cyrus were supposed to come to Uganda. But where, if you were to come at that point where you are going to be quarantined, belong to a government official, and you would be charged, I think, $100 a day, 14 days. In Uganda shillings, that's about 5.2 million shillings for 14 days. For a moderate Ugandan, that is a lot of money. And the quarantine processes were, for, were compulsory for everyone, and everyone had to pay that money. Wherever the money went was to a government official who owned some of these strategies. Um, now, I go to the strategies. The strategies came in three ways also. One is pay for your way. You organize yourself, get put some money in your pocket. I experienced that. Actually, I did that as part of my observation, uh, participant observation. I, I put some money in my pocket, got a friend's vehicle. I drove and went to the roadblock, and they blocked me. So when they blocked me, I also respected. I stood there, not because I wanted to go very fast, but because I want to see what else happens to the other people who are coming. So I observed everything, and then later, they walked towards me and they realized, okay, I'm very patient. They said, so where are you going? I said, I'm going to the hospital. Um, what are you going to do? Because when you go to the hospital, you know what you're going to do. <laughs> so um, they said, but you are, you are taking too long to behave. 
That was the question. You're taking too long to behave. And uh, to behave means I should put some money in my pocket and give it to them. And then I picked 5,000 shillings. Of course, I behaved and they allowed me to go. Now, the cost of abrogating the presidential directives was as low as 5,000 shillings. 5,000 is like 1.1 euro 20 cents. So that, that alone could spread the virus. So you can see what the nature of power that allows you to move and the nature of power that could actually contain you is just as, as minus 5,000 shillings. So uh, that became, that's why pay or pay for your way actually instrumentalized the entire process of COVID-19 being regulation of COVID-19 being some sort of a marketplace, marketplace for, 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 for security officers and for, for those authorities that were always at the roadblock. Then the other, the other, the other strategy was a structural defiance and alliance. Um, even the police and the soldiers who were containing people were also contained because most of them do not have vehicles. So if one wanted to move, for, for example, 400 kilometers from Gulu to Kampala, you just pick a police officer, put him in your vehicle, and you become their driver. And that was enough. You, you go wherever you want. That, that's the strategy. So you defy the law, but you ally with the law. So that's why we call it the structural defiance and, and alliance as a strategy. And then uh, the other strategy would be rerouting. People created different feeder roads around, navigate, block first and where there's a block roadblock you avoid that and then take another detour you reach to where you want to, to go now all this points us towards one thing that one uh, mobility 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 has got um, a mechanism of power that it operates with that if you have certain certain kinds of power you're able to move either faster or further or without any kind of impediment and in this paper we have to realize that Actually, we need even to update this paper because what we, what we wrote was we, are, we anticipate that immediately after general elections, COVID-19 will phase out. And indeed, there's no roadblock now. You can go wherever you want to go uh, because elections are done. COVID-19 has actually spread even more. People have died even more. But the, the state has just abandoned the population. So for us, we think the entire containment was because of the, the politics uh, that, that was going on. So um, the, the biopolitical interventions that the state was trying to put forth to try and manage the, the, the population was not specifically for the health and the wealth of the population, but for the good of the political situation, that the outcomes are supposed to be much better. And in fact, it came out much better for the president, Joel Museveni, and that is how the, the, the paper actually concludes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Paddy Guinera, for this wonderful talk. Martin has left us, but thank you also to Martin. I would like to invite you all to pose your questions to Paddy now. While you're all thinking of questions, I actually have a, a question of clarification to start us off with, and that is to invite you, Paddy, to tell us a little bit more about what lockdown actually meant in Uganda in terms of the mobility restrictions. Um, yes, thank you. I, I think that is something that I missed saying. Lockdown was interpreted differently. Everyone interpreted lockdown in a very different way. And uh, I think the, the functional and the operational interpretation was that which the security officials offered you, not even that which the president pronounced. Do not move. 
And lockdown was actually fused with the, uh, a certain practice called curfew. I just learned about it recently, of staying home and not moving. And uh, curfew in, in Uganda, okay, first of all, lockdown meant do not move. And if you have to move, walk. It, it meant moving. I think it stopped people from moving with the vessels like vehicles and motorcycles. But you could walk, you could jog to Gulu if you can. So that was, there was no lockdown actually. For me, I think that was complete. As long as you're able to walk within, uh, between a certain period of time, uh, at least from 6 a.m. until until 7 p.m., that was our lockdown. Our lockdown began at night that you are not supposed to move. Uh, but it also determined how you move. So that means privilege, you have a vehicle, and this time with lockdown, you are actually underprivileged. Those who used to move with bicycles and had their bicycles moving uh, with lockdown, they were actually more privileged because you are free to ride. If you, can, if you are fit enough to ride 200 kilometers, it's okay. So there was no lockdown in that case. And then uh, it came to a point where lockdown was actually interpreted, fused with curfew. But in the evenings, the soldiers came and interpreted lockdown in terms of where you stay. Uh, the president pronounced and said, from seven, be at home. So the security officials interpreted it from seven, be in the house. So when they find you seated outside, they push you inside and lock the door. So remain inside. And that's, that's lockdown to them. So at every single phase, we find a different interpretation of lockdown. Thank you very much, Paddy. This was very illuminating and really interesting to get to sort of also the different kinds of patterns of, you know, movements and uh, possibilities of um, restricting. So I have a few questions that are have come in now on the chat. Um, the first question is from Andrea Behren, who says, thank you, Patty, for your talk. And the question is, in how far the restrictions or the three movements that you described in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic are different from other situations that could be termed states of emergency in Uganda? I meant the three moments. Um, that you described, um, not movements. Yeah, sorry. It should be the three moments. The three moments actually, I think the, it, it's not any different from different uh, domains of social practice, like political practice in Uganda. You go to an, an office where some you need you need the favor, someone would want you to first behave. Um, you go to the hospital, the doctor would want you to first try to, to rush you through the procedures. They want you to put some kitokidog in your pocket. So it, it, it's a normal thing. But for the COVID-19, we are thinking of a new marketplace that was created, a, a new, a new the state of emergency actually came as something that is reasonable, reasonable. Someone could reason and say, no, if I stay home, I actually contain myself, I, I, I create a barrier of not contracting the virus. But where the state comes and brings in this, for us is very interesting, that instead of focusing, that's why I call it contradictory state visibility, instead of focusing on trying to maintain a healthy population, you're actually trying to create um, a, a, a zone where people can really bribe their ways out, conduct, go, go through all these sorts of mischief to jump the hurdle that is, actually, that is actually meant to protect the population. 
So the idea of biopolitical intervention into the lives of the population and trying to contain them in order to safeguard them from getting sick and potentially dying is fused with the with a, with, with a routine state practice. It's actually been imported into the COVID-19 management system, which actually for us, it does not even push the president aside because I know Uganda collected millions of money, but what did he do with the money? Later, now we are hearing um, the, the vaccines have come, but the country has no money to buy the vaccine because the, the president and his uh, political allies decided to buy vehicles to move around during, during campaigns. All, I mean, all this is part of, actually it draws on the, the, the exact character of the state that we are living in, but it has been pushed into the, the COVID-19. So that's why for the population became defiant at some point and decided to look at this as a big joke and continued with their business and everyone is up to their business right now. Thank you very much, Paddy. Grace Arkesa has a question that I think follows actually quite nicely on from what you were just saying also about the role of expertise and credibility. She asks if public health institutions challenged some of the containment strategies that were self-serving for the ruling government. So a question about visibility as well of the experts. Thank you, Grace. Not at all. The public health op operatives actually became absorbed into the state. Actually, when the president said at one point that Ugandans with money, they can accept to die. Yeah. And uh, actually, the Kenyans put a version that money kills Ugandans, and the Kenyans say money actually develops Kenyans. <laughs> I think there is a bit of some, some play, <laughs> play that. Um, the public health officials were actually silenced. One of the reasons for silencing them was the head of the public health system in Uganda is a personal doctor to the president. So I think when, when the stories come from above and say, you know, uh, you have to do A, B, C, D, they have to do it the way it's done. Otherwise, you're fired. Because I know the doctor who was the head of uh, the doctor's fraternity is called president of health workers in Uganda, it's called Dr. Ekwaru. Dr. Kwaru was actually suspended for trying to challenge some of the procedures that were being brought up. And one other thing was the state actually limited the point of discussion of COVID-19. Someone had the right to identify you as sick or not sick. And that person was simply supposed to come, put their hands on your chin and realize the temperature is high and they pronounce you sick and then you are taken for quarantine. A special vehicle is provided for you to be taken for quarantine when, when you're at quarantine, you have no mobile phone, you'd have no contact with anybody, you'll take the forage that the government will give you. And uh, yeah, that's how it was. So it was really a very swift process if they identified you as someone who was sick. So uh, and it was purely, purely managed by security forces and uh, the doctors will only examine you when you're ready in quarantine. So the medical practitioners, the experts, I think they were contained by the powers of the state, the other, the other powers of the state, power of security, and they also got, they got, they got afraid, and they couldn't much engage much with the COVID-19 situation, and they left it for, for, for the state to, 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 to conduct it the way it was done. Thank you very much, Paddy. Lee is curious about to learn more about the research question and hypothesis you used in the chapter, and I read that more as a comment and as a request 
that you guys share the paper at the written paper with us when it's ready. So we're all looking forward to the circulation of the written piece. Meanwhile, Joel Glassman asks, can you tell us about the impact of the election on the COVID-19 strategy or in other terms, would the lockdown have looked differently without the election happening? Thank you, Joel. I, I think we wouldn't have a lockdown if there was no police politics playing. Because I actually started looking at it right from the time of uh, uh, declaration of potential candidates for presidency and what have you. We, we would not have a lockdown that would have lasted much longer up to the period when um, the primaries of different political parties are being conducted. That is what I think. Uh, the clear example is now, we have, I think, in the range of about 500 deaths out of COVID-19. When the lockdown was imposed, nobody had died. And uh, the number of sick people were only 21. Now we have about 7,000, if not 11,000 people who are sick, and the state has actually failed to control it. And uh, the management system, the health workers, there are no protective mechanisms. There's no way you, you can now stop anyone from doing anything if, if you are a state in terms of, of, of the spread of the virus. So, and it is now that everything is free. Movement is free. Yet when everything was still at the, at the infancy, everything was still starting, the lockdown was imposed. So the, the idea was, I think, there was, there was a need to demobilize political positions by using the narrative of protecting uh, the population. Now, what happened, if you try to push your way through, there was a draconian charge that was put by the president that in case you are caught breaching any of these rules, you are charged with attempted murder. Attempted murder <laughs> takes you for many years in jail. So at least nobody wanted to be charged with attempted murder. But Joel, right now as I speak, I can go anywhere I want, yet the virus is on the, on the rise. And uh, I think it shows you what exactly was, was at play. Immediately after the election, the roadblocks were all removed. There's no security forces anymore. Curfew, you can play music at any time you want. You can go and dance if you want. You can move at night if you want. Curfew has also ended. And nobody pronounced it ended, but it just phased out. So I think it would look differently. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much, Paddy. This is really interesting. And Franka, uh, I feel curious about um, what happened to people who refuse to behave, are they, are they detained or left? Um, if you can tell us a little bit more, if you know about uh, the people who weren't able to or not willing to bribe or behave, as you called it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank. I, I will answer this with a story. Two ladies came from Dubai. They landed in Kenya and they moved the same route I used. They entered my village. And the local council identified them as people who came from outside. Because coming from outside means you're potentially sick. So what happened? They called the district health officials. The district health officials came. The population gathered, including myself, to see what they're going to do. They bundled these two ladies into one vehicle, dropped them as though they were taking them for 
quarantine. They refused to give out any money. They drove them 270 kilometers away from here, and then they didn't know where they were being taken. And all of a sudden, they just they tried to take them to the hospital, and the hospital officials said, no, you don't bring us COVID cases here. Every hospital refused, do not bring COVID cases here. So they just left the super at the roadside and said, you go back to where you came from. That was it. They just stopped somewhere and said, I think we are, we are heading nowhere and we came from nowhere. I think let's just part ways. Get out of the vehicle and find your way back. And that's what happened. But if you actually arrested at the roadblock, a severe case scenario is to be taken to prison. And in prison, nobody knows what will happen to you there. Nobody knows who will come and rescue you from there. You, and then nobody knows what situation you'll be in because, first of all, you will not be allowed to go there because they're trying to contain uh, people coming together. So the best would be to try and behave. Even if you can't behave immediately, you can promise that you'll behave next time in order to avoid being going into all this fracas of, 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 of containment and the rest. Thank you very much, Paddy. I have um, two more questions and a comment, and um, I would like to close the um, um, questions for now. Um, one is from Omar Egesa. Omar asks if there are any benefits of the lockdown at the curview that are realistic and could have health safety benefits against COVID-19. Do you also um, go into some of these in your paper, Patty? Yes. Uh, briefly, we go into this in, in the paper. One of the, the benefits that we would have got, which we didn't get, was um, the, the, the public will to donate money for health activities. And uh, this was madly squandered by the state. I think it was in the tune of about 1.5 uh, 150 billion Uganda shillings that was donated by well-wishers and governments, I mean, and, uh, and companies within Uganda. And this money, if I put, my, I put myself down to try and calculate what this money should have been used for. One, it said they're going to buy 1,000 four-wheel drive pickups to help the health workers run around. Now, 1,000, each four-wheel drive truck could train five doctors in a period of five years. So if you, if you got this money and you put them into the 1,000 trials, uh, vehicles, you multiply by five, you have about 5,000 doctors you would have trained without the state spending a coin because the money would have come from the public directly, no taxation, no what, no nothing. But what did the president do? He decided that they would rather buy vehicles with a lifespan of four years than the vehicles are dead. And yet you could have trained 25 year old to become doctors and their lifespan would be 25 years so you would have maintained this money for about 25 years. This did not work. That would have been a very good benefit, but it didn't work. Now the other benefit back home in my village is that people were locked down and the president allowed them to go to their farms. So we tried to use that to fight hunger. Food security became, uh, I mean, that, that's something we can say the lockdown produced for us. We were in the garden. Myself, I was also partly in the garden sometimes. So I avoided the market to buy food and people have a lot of food. Thank you very much. That's a really intriguing side effect or benefit, if you like, that it would certainly be worth going into a lot more. But 
for today. Um, I would like to close with one last question and one uh, short observation by our brilliant speaker from the last print series, Nadine Mashiku, who says that it's quite remarkable that the case of Cameroon is very similar and that the micro arrangements of both the state agents and the population to not follow the rules were very comparable. Um, Kamal Donko asks, could you talk a little bit more about the impact of the mobility restrictions on the economy and how do people react against these restrictions, I think, when it pertains to the economy in particular? Well, thank you, Kamal. Uh, the economy, the economy uh, here becomes, this becomes um, a national issue. And our analysis was actually mainly on a micro issue. So if I talk about the economy, I'll talk about mainly the household economy. Uh, if I talk about the national economy, it would be, I don't, I didn't have really, really clear data on what happens if you stop all the planes entering and from coming in. If you stop, you try and put a chain of lockdown, a chain of measures to track drivers coming from Kenya. I remember there's a time when they had like 11 kilometers of, of jam, truck jam along, along Busia, Malaba Road, because the test kit would take two days for every driver to be, to be, to, for every driver's result to come. And later there was also, uh, and this disturbed the economy somehow. The markets were not working. People were not um, doing business as, as they used to do. There are certain places that were closed, like saloons, these, these, um, these small, small enterprises, mid, small and mini enterprises of the population were really, really severely, severely affected. Uh, restaurants, you would only do takeaway if you don't have potential to do takeaway. You could not, and this made people actually poorer, I think. And uh, from the local economy, like I said, for us, we live in an economy where all you need to do is grow food, sell if you can. People, people actually grew more, more food crops. And now it's a season for harvesting. The cash crops are not there. The effect of the pandemic is going to come in the next year, actually during this year, because People are not selling anything because they didn't grow any cash crops. Yeah. So because they were not anticipating that lockdown would be, so people grew more of the food. So you have what to eat, but you don't have what to send your, your child to school with. I mean, you cannot sell anything. So I think from, uh, from the state perspective, the economy did not suffer much because the World Bank was heavily involved in funding lockdown. Yeah. It locked your population down for a certain number of days. We give you this much money. We also talked about that slightly in our paper. Then the comment on um, whether we dealt with some of these benefits in our paper, I think it's there. The research question, um, Lee, the research questions are there. There are three. Uh, maybe I think with time we will share this paper after the review. Thank you ever so much, Dr. Paddy Kenyera, speaking about his research on COVID-19 mobility, mobility restrictions in Uganda. We hope you tune in for the next time. Lectures on African Mobilities, a podcast by Africa Multiple.